at that stage when France fell, they knew that France would go dark in terms of intelligence. And so they would need somebody to rebuild the bridge between the French intelligence services underground and Britain, which was then the kind of last dog in the fight, as it were, at that stage. And Josephine was put forward as one of those individuals, one of those possible individuals. The reason being that she was not going to leave. She was determined not to leave. She'd made her mind up not to do that. And so she was approached by Jacques Abde, Captain Jacques Abde of the Dizian Bureau. He, he drove out to her chateau in, 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 in the outskirts of Paris with very, very low hopes. Didn't want to go. So he's taken into the chateau. They're served champagne by a, a white-coated butler uh, by the fireside. And this is where it gets really fascinating because very quickly Abte is treated to the Josephine effect, what I described earlier on the stage, but this is up close, one-on-one, -on -one, personal. He is seduced. He's overcome. And he, he suddenly thinks to himself, gosh, if she can do this to me here, imagine what she can do as a spy. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is best-selling author Damian Lewis. He's here to talk about his excellent best-selling book, Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy, which is about the extraordinary life of singer and dancer Josephine Baker and the critical role she played as a resistance spy during World War II. Born into the disease-riddled slums of St. Louis, where she shared one mattress with her three brothers and sisters, Josephine joined a traveling song and dance troupe at age 14. After four years performing in choruses on Broadway, she realized that she would only get so far in segregation-plagued America. So in 1925, at age 19, Josephine set off to Europe, where she quickly became an enormous international star. Author Ernest Hemingway called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. Yet despite her phenomenal stage success, it was Josephine's activities as a British and French resistance spy during World War II and the critical part she played in the successful Allied landing in North Africa known as Operation Torch that she considered her greatest achievement. Prepare to be amazed as author Damien Lewis relates the little-known story of the wartime espionage and cloak-and-dagger exploits of World War II hero Josephine Baker. We welcome the very talented Damien Lewis and commemorate the great Josephine Baker as today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. So, Damien, let's start out. Can you talk just about a little, little bit about how you, interestingly, got connected to this story? Probably 10 years ago, I, somewhere, probably social media, I can't remember, I came across a little snippet, Josephine Baker, heroine, heroine spy in the Second World War, and several things occurred to me. One, I'd never heard of that. I knew who she was, obviously. Yeah. Two, how on earth could somebody of such instant recognizability and such, you know, global fame have been aspired and make sense? Yeah. And three, if it's true, what an amazing story. So I just kind of, you know, as you do, I opened a file and started digging around. There wasn't a great deal available. And then I was slowly building up this file of research and then 
by sheer coincidence, and this is where it gets really kind of like serendipity came into play. My father, about 20 years ago, sold our modest home in, in, in Dorset in England, where I live, and bought a 14th century chateau, it pretty much ruined in France, and spent the next 20 years renovating it. So he's what they call in France a chatelaine, which is the chateau owner. Um, and because of that, he goes and visits lots of other people's chateaus. And he'd been down to visit Josephine Baker's former chateau in the Dordogne, mm. chateau, uh, chateau des Milans, um, knowing it, of course, it was a beautiful chateau, but really not knowing, obviously, about her wartime history. And the chateau is preserved by the owner, uh, Angelique de Saint-Exbury, as a living shrine and museum to Josephine Baker. It's utterly remarkable. Mm. So he emailed me or called me, I can't remember, and said, hey, I've just been to see the chateau, and it's wonderful. But more importantly... Do you know about Josephine Baker's spying at, and, and, and work with the resistance in World War II, at which they just, well, I know a bit about it, but yeah. tell me more. So he said, well, Josephine Baker's chateau is, you know, this living memorial to it. And so, again, trying to cut a long story short, the next summer I went to France, because we go every summer, see my father, of course, he kind of hosted us on a visit down. He took us down to, you know, uh, visit the chateau. And one, I was blown away. Yeah. The Chateau Benoit is amazing. I would recommend anyone to go there. And two, I was then able to reach out to uh, Angelique um, de Saint-Exupéry, who runs, owns and runs this 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 living memorial and museum. And I said to Angelique, I remember saying, you know, look, um, you know, am I right or am I wrong that really Josephine Baker's wartime, um, you know, story is the most important part of her story? It's not what happened before the war, or even after the war. That is it. Yeah. And no one knows it. And she said, absolutely. So at that stage, it had to be written. I'm glad you did. Let's just start by talking a little bit about her background, because she was uh, an amazing, surprising person, I would say, surprising intelligence and, and, and thoughtfulness and political acumen, too. Yeah, so Josephine was uh, brought up in um, you know, real poverty and, and, and you could argue a desperate um, childhood in, in St. Louis um, in a really, you know, a, a family and a community um, you know, beset by real poverty, you know, just examples, no school, no sh school shoes to go to school, you know, stealing coal from the local locomotives to sell to rich folks' houses to, you know, try and put food on the table, um, you know, really, really difficult. And and she didn't, first of all, they couldn't afford to send her to school, so she had to go out to work really early. But secondly, you know, school and her did not get on, as you, as you can appreciate. Yeah. At an early age, you know, really 11, 12 years old, Josephine, Suddenly, she knew she'd always loved to dance and to sing, but of course, it was just something, you know, she did uh, informally. And then, kind of quack medicine man came to St. Louis, selling all his potions and his, you know, quacks, quack, quack uh, cures as they did at the time. And to attract people to his stall, he ran a one-dollar competition for the best singer and dancer. And Josephine jumped up on stage, sang and danced her heart out, and won. <laughs> and so she ran home to her mum and gave her a dollar. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, she'd never earned a dollar in her life. Yeah. And in that moment, she suddenly realized, you know, could I actually make a living by doing what I love? And so, again, trying to cut a long story short, she was from then on determined to make it on stage. So she pretty much ran away to join a traveling troupe, did that for, you know, several months, but realized very quickly because she was very astute. You know, this was a street smart lady. Yeah. Very street smart. And she realized very quickly that um, the only way to make it on stage was to get it get into Broadway. And so she managed to very bruising process, you know, tearful and traumatic at times, but she eventually managed to secure herself apart on Broadway. And she in due course became a star. 
But by the age of, so we're talking 16 years old by now, so 16, 17, 18, she was really breaking through. But by the age of 19, so we're only talking four years into her kind of New York Broadway career, she realised that she would never really make it in America. Mm-hmm. She would never achieve what she saw as her potential. And the reason was because of the Jane Crow, Jim Crow laws. You know, the prejudice was still mm-hmm. very real. Yeah. You know, she was still pigeonholed within that within that convenient pigeonhole of black female, uh, which would only ever go so far. Mm-hmm. And she had heard, who hadn't heard, especially on, on, on the performing circuit, that things were somewhat different in Europe. For example, you know, there was less prejudice. Uh, those kind of laws didn't exist. Uh, you could, you know, uh, aspire to be who you knew you could be and you might get there in Europe. And then she was approached by an impresario, a kind of theatre manager, organiser, American lady, who was organising a new show in Paris called The Revue Negre. Mm-hmm. And she was asked if she would be the female star. And so, you know, at age 19, she took her heart in her hands, as you can imagine, very daunting, never left the States before. Yeah. And she sailed in a liner for France and for Paris, not knowing, you know, what the world might hold in store for her. You know, having heard all these great things about Europe, but not knowing if any of it was true. And then very quickly, you know, she 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 was, you know, the female star lead in the Revue Negra. And the review the Revue Negra was kind of a show of its time it it celebrated kind of you know native stereotypes you could argue mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. pretty you know naked dancing um very kind of like you know um the, the african woman in the jungle it kind of played to all those stereotypes stereotypes right josephine knew what she was doing so she kind of flipped that on its head to a certain extent almost to play on the audience's stereotypes yeah and it it, it had one of two effects on the audience it either had the most rave reviews imaginable and took Paris by storm. Or there was the flip side. There were elements of the press and the public which absolutely hated and abhorred it. Yeah. But very quickly, that propelled her, catapulted her into stardom. So she toured all of Europe with the Review Negra. And, you know, within a matter of months, she was actually touring Germany. Wow. And we're now talking, you know, before the rise of Nazism. Yeah. To absolutely rapturous, you know, headline rave reviews in the German press. And that's the great kind of irony, really, And is that at that stage, you know, she was acclaimed and celebrated across the German nation only for a few years later to become public enemy number one of the Nazi state. Well, she seemed to have this ability not only to connect with the audience, which was, like, remarkable, but also she was sexy, and at the same time she was sort of making fun of it like not taking herself seriously, which is a very sophisticated thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. She would, you know, she, Josephine was an operator, you know, she'd learned to be an operator in a youth in St. Louis. Yeah. And she took that with her onto the stage yeah. and, and in everything that she did. So on one level, she was naive and a lot of people took advantage of her, but on another level, she was the great survivor. Yeah. And, and she, she had this, you know, there's, there's a chap in New York called Jean-Pierre, Reggiori, who was one of her dancers, and he's still alive, lovely guy, you know, in his 70s, I guess, but absolutely, you know, um, fantastic. And he was really helpful with researching the book. And he said to me when I spoke to him, listen, you need to understand the Josephine effect. So she had a, an ability, which in my view was unrivaled, I've never seen it before or since, to reach out from the stage and to make every single person she's singing to believe that she was singing and dancing specifically for him or for her. Wow. I don't know if you do any public speaking. I'm sure you do. I do a bit of it. Mm -hmm. And I know that if you have that ability to reach out 
and connect with every single person you're speaking to. It's magic. It's like stardust that you sprinkle on the stage. Yeah. Not many people can do it. And I think even less so in that, in that very difficult world of, of, of performing, you know, um, song and dance on, on the stage. Josephine had it like nobody else. Yeah. And so, you know, that in, in large part accounted for her runaway success. That was the magic. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. She knew what she was doing. And even when she was playing to a largely affluent white audience's stereotypes, she was also subverting them at the same time. Yeah. And that was kind of like her early activism shining through. Yeah, it is. It, it carries through. Let's move forward to 1939 and the build-up to the war. And Josephine Baker has been in in Europe now for over 10 years. Absolutely, yeah. Poland is invaded. Uh, France is, uh, you know, looks like it's next. And Josephine Baker, being who she is and the fact that she is an American, has an opportunity to leave the country, and she decides to stay. Yeah, so Josephine had been targeted by both the Nazi state but also by um, Allied intelligence services prior to the war. The Nazi state had identified her as an enemy, as standing for all the things the Nazi state abhorred. So, yeah. so Joseph Goebbels himself, you know, put her on the front of a brochure and said, you know, this is the ideal of everything that the that, that Nazi state stands against. But equally, she had been courted by the French and British intelligence services at that time because, well, for several reasons. First of all, because... There is a long tradition, perhaps not that well known about, but a long tradition of using celebrities as agents, as spies, as espionage agents. And the reason is because they have the ability to travel all over the world due to their work. Yeah, They generally do so with voluminous tour luggage in which you can hide intelligence. And they move in very high circles where you can, where you're, yeah. you know, where, where it's natural to gather that kind of intelligence. Yeah. Josephine had all of that in bucketfuls. You know, she could walk into the Japanese embassy, the Italian embassy, lots of these places where future enemies lay and speak to the military attaches and seduce them intellectually, if not physically, and gather intelligence. This is what white allied intelligence courted her. And at the same time, and this is where the story gets really, really fascinating, British and French intelligence working hand in glove at this stage, just prior to the war, they knew France would fall. France fell to the Germans in record time. By the second week of June 1939, the French government had fallen, Paris had emptied, and well over 300,000 mostly French and British troops had been rescued from Dunkirk. The situation for the rest of Europe looked extremely bleak. The British feared they would be invaded next. Winston Churchill, just weeks into his role as Britain's Prime Minister, famously declared, and I quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of desperate American citizens besieged the U.S. Embassy in Paris, seeking last-minute papers to get them out of Europe and safely back to the United States. One American who opted not to run was Josephine Baker. At that stage when France fell, they knew that France would go dark in terms of intelligence, and so they would need somebody to rebuild the bridge between the French intelligence services underground and Britain, which was then the kind of last dog in the fight, as it were, at that stage. 
And Josephine was put forward as one of those individuals, one of those possible individuals. The reason being that she was not going to leave. Yeah. She was determined not to leave. She'd made her mind up not to do that already. She had already said, you know, when the French intelligence services came to recruit her, she said, you know, France has given me anything. Paris has given me all that I am. The French people have given me all that I am. I will give this country and the people my life. So she had already made that stand. Yeah. And she'd made it clear to the French intelligence services. So they knew she was going nowhere. And they, they, and they and the British intelligence services were thinking, right, we need somebody to reestablish that bridge, you know, to travel and carry intelligence and lists of names and contacts. Josephine's ideal. She's the, she was the most photographed woman before the war. Hmm. She was iconic. Yeah. You know, that, that superstar, you know, effect that we, we're so familiar with now in celebrity life. She had it in bucket loads. So she could pretty much walk into anywhere and just wow people with her very presence and that would enable her to get through choke points and 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 places of difficulty and so she was already before the fall of france earmarked for this you know absolutely seminal you could say war-winning role uh at which she did go on to perform at this point she meets somebody who's going to be very key in her life uh jacques apte yeah so jacques apte uh worked for the was an agent long-standing agent with the dizium bureau which is the French counter-espionage service. So these are the people responsible for catching spies in your country mm-hmm. and for sending out spies into other countries to catch your spies there, if that makes sense. Right. They're tasked with the with the defense of the realm in terms of, of, of entrapping other people's spies or people spying from foreign powers. Um, and she was approached by Jacques Abte at the behest of two people uh, who are absolutely seminal to her story. One is... Uh, Wilfred Dunderdale, Commander Wilfred Dunderdale, who was the British mm-hmm. Chief of Intelligence in Paris, and incidentally, he was the he was a friend of um, um, Ian Fleming, who was a British spy for naval intelligence during the war, the author of the James Bond series. Yeah, and Fleming bases James Bond in part on 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 Wilfred Dunderdale, and incidentally, Wilfred Dunderdale is such a celebrated figure within the secret intelligence service in Britain today that at the headquarters where training takes place of British agents, there is a boardroom with a long oak table, and on the long oak table is a silver bowl, and it's Wilfred Dunderdale's uh, commemorative bowl. It's absolutely extraordinary. Wow. He's like the inspiration for modern-day agents. So Dunderdale and head of the French Dizian Bureau, Colonel Paul Pelol, had basically got their heads together and, and realised Josephine was this potential agent that could rebuild the bridge. And so she was approached by Jacques Abte, Captain Jacques Abte of the Dizian Bureau, he, he drove out to her chateau in, 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 in the outskirts of Paris with very, very low hopes, didn't want to go, mm-hmm. believed this was going to be a complete waste of time. It was only because uh, Colonel Pelot insisted that he went. He was under orders to go. And he arrived there expecting Josephine to be the archetype of Josephine Baker, you know, maybe the cheater on the diamond-studded leash, yeah. you know, dripping in gold and diamonds and, you know, a very um, yeah. beautiful revealing dress and all the rest of it. She walked out of her garden dressed in an old felt hat, like gardening overalls, and with a rusty tin can clutch full of snails. She'd been out collecting snails to feed to her ducks because Josephine had always been, always been, ever since you know she could remember, a lover of animals. Absolutely. She filled the family home. They had no money, but she filled it with pets. And indeed, wow. animals were part of her show, as you know. You know, She was always on show with cheetahs and monkeys and everything else. Yeah, and and Abte's thinking, uh, yeah, okay, that's Josephine Baker, but not quite as I expected. I and mean, he's taken into the chateau. <laughs> yeah, they're served champagne by a, a white-coated butler uh, by the fireside, 
And this is where it gets really fascinating because very quickly, Abate goes, is treated to the Josephine effect, what I described earlier on the stage, but this is up close, one-on-one, personal. Yeah. He is seduced. Yeah. He's overcome. And he, he suddenly thinks to himself, gosh, if she can do this to me here, yeah. imagine what she can do as a spy. Can you, you see what I'm saying? If she can use that and channel that to the world of espionage, she will be unbeatable. And so he's then got to find a way to put the question to her, will you spy for France? And that's pretty much what he does, actually. He <laughs> says, I've obviously come for a reason. You know, we need you to be an honourable correspondent, which is what they called these freelance, voluntary spies for your nation. And it's at that stage that Josephine says to him, you know, and I paraphrase, but, you know, look, France and, and the French people have given me everything. I will give this country my life, of course. Wow. Anything you wish me to do. In fact, she says, use me as you will. Those are her very words. Yeah. So Abte has to go away and set her a first challenge. And the first task that he sets her, or the Bureau sets her, is that obviously Britain and France are, are dying to know what the um, intentions will be of Italy. And then at that stage, neutral, fascist country, but neutral, should Nazi Germany declare war. We don't know. And so Josephine has set that task. So she goes to the Italian embassy. She knows the attache, military attaché there very well seduces him intellectually, challenges him, possibly physically as well. She was not adverse to using her female charms to uh, to get the intelligence she needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she calls Jacques Abte up a week later, <laughs> and she's absolutely kind of beside herself. Nothing can be said over the phone, because yeah. the phone lines are tapped. And so they meet uh, in central Paris, and she's driving her Delange luxury motor car, which is upholstered <laughs> in snakeskin. But she is so excited and kind of um, nervous at what she's discovered, um, that she is driving so erratically that she gets arrested by a French gendarme <laughs> who then realises it's Josephine Baker when she puts the window yeah. down and waves her arm. And anyway, yeah. Jacques Abte is, is, is you know, she reveals to him the, the full breadth of what she's discovered. And he thinks, okay, yes, she's proven exactly what I suspected. She can get this stuff if we need it. But he's also thinking... I'm supposed to handle this agent and train her and keep yeah. her under control. And she is uncontrollable <laughs> and she is, you know, she's wild. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's this kind of duality on the one hand, the potential is limitless, but so too he thinks is the potential for chaos and anarchy. Yes. <laughs> oh, but she delivers within a week. You said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a week later. Yeah. Incredible. There was never the slightest question in her mind at any stage before the war or during the war of what she would do. Josephine had more to lose at the hands of the Nazis than most. Not only was she a wealthy international celebrity, she had also been targeted by German Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, as one of the so-called decadent artists that epitomized everything the Nazis abhorred. In fact, Goebbels featured Josephine's photo on the cover of her propaganda leaflet, which declared her a member of the Untermenschen, the subhumans, people who by virtue of their color, ethnicity, religious beliefs, or political views were precluded from membership in the Nazi master race and considered enemies of the state. Benito Mussolini, Italy's fascist dictator, jumped on the bandwagon proclaiming that Josephine was banned from visiting Italy. But Josephine wasn't cowed by either of them. She calmly retreated to her chateau in the Dordogne 
in the southwest of occupied France and continued her clandestine activities there. You've got to understand, she was a black female. She's already one of the Untermensch, the subhumans in the view of the Nazis. Let's talk Turkey. She's a subhuman as far as the Nazis are concerned. Bear in mind, she went to perform again in Germany after uh, Hitler had come to power during the rise of the Nazis, and she had been subjected to such horrific racial abuse and physical abuse that a tour scheduled to last for six months had lasted three weeks, at which stage she ran. And she ran pretty much for her life. Yeah. So she's seen at first hand what the Nazi state is really about. So there's no doubt in her mind ever, there's no doubt at any stage that she'll stand and fight to the bitter end if need be. And not only that, but she'll stand and fight and make allies of whoever she has to, yeah. as long as you are on the side of right. So you could be a criminal, a mafiosa, a forger, <laughs> yeah. even a murderer, yeah. an assassin. It doesn't matter. Yeah. If you'll fight the Nazis, you're with us and you're against them. And that's all that mattered to her. Um, and it's one of her standout qualities, and it's one of the things I love about her and her story is that she is willing to do just about anything to to vanquish the Nazi threat. And so she gathers to her at the Chateau de Démilon in the Dordogne, this beautiful 14th century chateau that she's rented, pretty much for this very purpose. It becomes her intelligence gathering and resistance headquarters. The problem is, as you've so you know, eloquently uh, intimated, not only... Is she in a tiny minority? We have to understand that during the summer of 1940, very, very few people in France even were mindful that, that, that resistance might be possible, yeah. let alone what form it might take. Yeah. Most people were just trying to survive, as you can imagine. Sure. So Josephine's in a tiny minority. Not only that, she 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 and those people who want to you know, form a resistance cell and those former intelligence agents who have gathered to her, none of them know what form resistance should take. And certainly... None of them, the whole of the French intelligence service, some of which has now gone underground, all of which is now being actively, remorselessly hunted by the Gestapo and the Nazis, who have captured many of the secret files in Paris, which prove who the agents are and give their addresses and their family addresses. Yeah. Imagine the fear and the terror of the time. You know, none of them know what form the resistance should take. And all of them are aware that the the contacts and the avenues and the alliances with the old allies, Britain, America, have, have completely fallen. Yeah. There is no contact whatsoever anymore. Right. So she sat there in a chateau trying to work out with her kind of DIY makeshift resistance cell, intelligence cell, what on earth they should do. It's, it's a really dark and disturbing and uncertain time. Yeah. As the Nazis are finding and killing agents... The French resistance does have a trove of documents that they need to get out of the country. And they, they come to Josephine yeah, for help. Absolutely. So kind of like August, September 1940, Jacques Abte, the agent who recruited her in the first place and who's been a handler up until now, turns up at the Chateau des Milons, Josephine's kind of resistance headquarters. And he turns up basically and says, Josephine, I've come from Paul Pellol, who's the former director of the Dozen Bureau, bear in mind they're now all underground. Mm -hmm. And he basically says, look, mm -hmm. the colonel is setting up a shadow intelligence service. This is a French intelligence service that's going to work underground on behalf of the Allies. Britain at the moment, but hopefully if America and others join the war, you know, the Allies united against the Nazis. But what we do not have is a conduit through to London. We need one. And what we do have is a vast amount of intelligence we've gathered since France fell. So we're talking 
you know, June, July, August, September, four months worth of intelligence. And it's a trove. You know, it's things like the list of the names of all the German agents dispatched to, to Britain. It's all the Luftwaffe air bases from where they're they're planning the, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. It's the design of the invasion craft that the Nazis are building to invade Great Britain. It's an absolute treasure trove of intelligence, but they have it's document, it's raw documentation, and they have no way of getting it to London. So Josephine is asked by Jacques Abte, will you take this material to London under the guise of going on a, a, a performing tour? And the way we would do that is you would put on a genuine tour in Portugal, which is still a neutral la- nation, and in Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, there happens to be a British embassy. And in the British embassy, there happens to be a secret uh, cell of the British intelligence service. And so we would go to Lisbon with all this material hidden in your tour luggage, and we would deliver it to the embassy. And from there, they would take it to London. And so that is the mission. It's a war-winning mission that that Josephine is asked to undertake. And of course, without a moment's hesitation, she says, when do you want me to go? And just to give you some indication as to how important this is, yeah. In June of that year, so shortly after, you know, literally days after France falls, Churchill holds a meeting with his chiefs of staff. So this is the British, you know, prime minister, um, you know, at our darkest hour. And one of the first things he wants to discuss is, is, is the fall of France and the complete lack of any intelligence sources there. And he says to his chiefs of staff, get me back into France. Yeah. doesn't matter what, whatever it takes, come hell or high water, we need visibility because without that, we cannot win the battle that's coming. Yeah. And so you've got Churchill saying that at one end, you've got Pelol and Abte saying it at the other end, Josephine agreeing, you know, it's a it's a hell of a high stakes mission. Yeah. And it, as you say, it is the darkest hour. Yeah. It looks like there's there's absolutely no hope for Europe and even Great Britain. Sure, absolutely. You know, look, bear in mind at that moment, you know, yes, of course, plans are being made to defend Britain against the coming Battle of Britain, the Blitz, and uh, and the Operation Sea Line, the seaborne invasion we believe was coming. Yeah. But also, very, very real plans have been put in place to move the whole of the British administration to Canada. Yeah. Because we all, the belief was that Britain would fall. Mm-hmm. And, and it's only Churchill, really, who's standing firm and saying, no, we will fight back. Yeah. And victory will be ours. Yeah. But crucial to that victory is intelligence. And thank God Churchill understood that. You know, it's one of the really interesting things about the story is that the French politicians at the time and the british politicians at the time because of course churchill wasn't in power before the outbreak of the war they were warned by the british intelligence services they were warned look it when the nazis invade it's not an if it's a when france will fall yeah this is what is coming and they would all chosen to ignore it i know they had faith in in their defenses then the nazis just marched right past it just went around the outside absolutely rolled right into paris yeah. there was really no resistance no once the Maginot Line was was um, you know this great massive concrete fortification with 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 you know huge gun emplacements. Once that was not breached but circumvented, they just went around it. All was lost. Yeah. And you know Paris was given up without a shot being fired. It was declared an open city because nobody wanted Paris to be destroyed. Yeah. So yeah, and the, and the really fascinating thing as well is that although the French and British intelligence services had said France will fall, no one in their wildest imaginings, had said France will fall within a matter of days. Yeah, it was so fast. It took less than a month for the Nazis to, well, for, for Germany to achieve what it did in the fall of France in, in World War II than it took four years of the First World War for them to fail to achieve. And even though Josephine was in the South, which was in the Vichy 
Vichy France, which was sort of this de facto Nazi French government. She was basically in enemy territory. Yeah, for sure. So it's not like she had any kind of safe haven. No, and they came visiting her in the chateau, you know? Yeah, you described that, yeah. There was that moment where, you know, one day in August, you know, she's at the chateau. In fact, she's got two intelligence agents, these undercover intelligence agents. They've just arrived from Paul Pellon, you know, her, <laughs> her former director, now the director of the Underground French Intelligence Service, with a load of files and actually some weaponry as well. And she's got them in the library and they're going through the documentation and the maid runs in and says the enemy are here at the gates. And so the two intelligence agents have to go and hide in the cellars. All the resistors and, and various other agents around go to the four corners of the chateau. And Josephine prepares to, you know, herself to receive this armistice commission, so Gestapo colonel in, in the chateau library, her favourite room. And he comes in in all his Nazi regalia, expecting her to be cowed, deferential and terrified. And she is the absolute opposite. She is icy. <laughs> and unwelcoming yeah. and dismissive in the extreme. She basically treats him as if, what on earth are you doing here? And how do you think you have the right to come here and ask me these questions? It's the most remarkable scene, and it, and it underscores again how her career on the stage, yeah. her ability to be that actor, made her the perfect agent. So the the, guy, the colonel walks in expecting to for this woman to break down and confess all. Quite the reverse. She says to him, <laughs> basically, you know, what on earth are you doing here? You've illegally invaded this country. You've no right to be here. Come here and ask me some questions when you come in peace. Otherwise, I've got nothing to say to you. <laughs> and he's completely, <laughs> completely thrown off guard. And, you know, yeah. and it works because if you were guilty of the things he accuses her of, which is harboring weapons and, 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 and foreign agents uh, in the chateau, you would be terrified and you would right. quite like you'd be likely to break down. She does the opposite. And it's amazing because eventually he says to her, do I even get offered a cup of coffee? And she said, <laughs> I would gladly offer you coffee if you came here in peace and you hadn't invaded yeah. our country. And more to the point, since Nazi Germany invaded France, there is no coffee. So I have none to offer you because everything's <laughs> run out. Oh, brilliant answer. Yeah. Just a, a fearless, a fearless woman. Yeah. Well, bear in mind, you know, Josephine had spent a lot of her life Fighting prejudice, let's be honest about it. Yeah. That was a big yeah. part of her life. Right. Prejudice on the streets, prejudice on the stage. And she'd finally found somewhere, Paris, France, Europe. And I, I'm not arguing for one moment it was perfect. It was far from perfect. Yeah. But it was much better than where she came from. And she had become the person she hoped she could become. And just as she's getting there, just as she really feels that she's achieving all she can achieve, yeah. bam, the walls come down and Nazi Germany invades. And Nazi Germany's about to take it all away. And also, bear in mind, you know, we have to understand and always remind ourselves and always remember, even today, what was the aim of Nazi Germany? What was the aim of Berlin? What was the aim of Hitler? It wasn't just to conquer Western Europe. It was to conquer the world under Nazism. Yeah. The Fourth Reich was to be a global Reich. And, that, and, and the next target was America. And in fact, America was actually the chief target. Mm -hmm. Germany had to take Europe first, as it saw it, and they were right, right. as the springboard. But America was... was absolutely critical to hitler's aims as was uh, as was the east russia as well so the whole world was under threat and as a black female yeah or a jew or a homosexual or a yeah. communist or just someone who who believed in democracy and freedom you would have nowhere to run to if nazi germany succeeded by the end of 1940 the strategic situation from the allied perspective seemed increasingly desperate the axis powers of germany Italy and Japan 
controlled almost all of Europe, North Africa, Korea, Southeast Asia, and parts of China. In Europe, the Battle of Britain, which had begun the previous September, still raged nightly over the skies of London, Birmingham, and other British cities, with civilian casualties climbing past 20,000. Most observers considered the air attacks a precursor to a German invasion of the island. Meanwhile, the world's other two large military powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, sat on the sidelines and seemed to have little interest in joining the Allied cause. The Soviet Union had recently signed a broad trade agreement with Germany that provided them with raw materials needed to create weapons and ammunition. In the United States, isolationist sentiment remained strong. Then in May, there was a small sign of hope when the United States Congress narrowly passed the Lend-Lease Act, which had been proposed by President Delanor Roosevelt and allowed Britain, China, and other allied nations to purchase military equipment and to defer payment until after the war. You could argue, and I think this is pretty much the case, she had no option but to fight. She was fighting for her own survival. And she understood that where, where other people didn't. She did. She did. She, she, she was such a smart cookie. And, you know, obviously when Nazi Germany invaded and there was a big queue outside the American embassy in Paris of Americans getting visas to go back to the States, she would have been in front of the queue because of who she was. She chose not to do so. And that's because she understood either you stand and fight or we are all going down. Yeah. And what comes through strongly in the book is even at this stage when she's at her chateau and these sort of resistance figures are gathering around her, she becomes an inspiration to them. Yeah, absolutely. So true. I mean, it's one of the things that struck me about her story. In fact, I almost wanted to call the book Unbreakable. Yeah. This woman was unbreakable, just totally unbreakable. I'll give you examples. So she's there with, and, and they are all mainly men because they that the world of intelligence was largely populated by men. They're all mainly white men because that was the, you know, that was the demographic of the time. And at, at every stage with one of them or a, another of them, Pelol, Abte, all these people that, that were around her, at one stage or another, they all have a crisis of confidence. And you can understand why. Sure. Look, until probably early 1943, it looked a dead cert that Nazi Germany would win. And so for the first few years, you are fighting against, you, you're, you're, you're swimming against the tide, you know? Yeah. But at every stage where somebody in her presence, in her milieu, you know, expresses those fears, Josephine just has no truck with it. And she says at every stage, this is what she says, listen, don't worry, America will join the fight. Yeah. You don't know what America's capable of. Once America joins the war, we will win. Yeah. And that was her, you know, great strength that, that buoyed them up. And, you know, it was part of this bigger picture in which, you know, I, remember I described that scene earlier where Jacques Capet was worried if he was ever going to be able to control and handle this agent. Mm -hmm. Incrementally, week by week, month by month, the tables are turned. So Abte, the handler, starts to be inspired by and almost handled by the rookie agent that he's supposed to be in control of. It's, it's remarkable, that transformation. Yeah. And what stood out to me was not only her prescience in terms of the United States entering the war, but her grasp of sort of uh, 
global strategic military politics. I mean, this was a woman with no formal education, but she obviously knew people so well, and she had had to develop those talents in order to survive, that she just got it. She just sort of got it on a political global scale. She wasn't just somebody who was a performer. You know, she was really an acute observer of the world around her. Sure. You know, you're talking a grand strategist. Yeah, that's right. And and I can't explain to you where that comes from. I think it's innate. It is innate. I think, you know, that was something that she was born with. Yeah. But so many junctures during the story of her, you know, her espionage work during World War II, she makes decisions, and, and often they're decisions that her her fellow agents are against. I mean, there's that moment in 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 Morocco where, you know, Abte wants to just kind of lay back and let the war take its course and, you know, they deserve some rest. And she's like, no, I'm off to Spain and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and gather intelligence there because that's what we need to do right now. Yeah. And he warns her against it and they have that massive row, if you remember. Yeah. And she says, basically, screw you, I'm going. <laughs> and she's off. And and she pulls it off, and she's absolutely right. Yeah. And when she comes back with this laden with this fantastic intelligence and this insight, he eats humble pie. And 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 credit to Abte, he does exactly that. Yeah. And more credit to Abte, actually. That the great thing about Jacques Abte as a as a character and a you know a male agent in the nineteen forties and a long standing agent is he has the humility and the insight and the intelligence and the affection for her. Yeah. to realize quickly what she really brings to the table yeah. and to embrace that. Yeah. Because I think a lot of guys possibly would not have had the humility and the ability to do so. He does. And that's, that's a huge, um, you know, it's a huge Philip and a huge um, asset that, that we need to acknowledge in him. No, his, his character comes through strongly in the book. Very interesting and admirable man. And their relationship, you know, just deepens as time goes by. It's important to note that, you know, these men were separated from their families and their wives, and he was one of them. So they they were really, you know, in a sense, even more refugees than she was. Like, she seemed to be more comfortable in the situation. Yeah, for sure. Probably because of the way she had grown up, she had never known stability. So it was like, okay, these are the circumstances. I can adjust to this, and I'll deal with it. I've done things on a smaller scale before adjusted to difficult circumstances, I'll deal with it. And these were guys who had been living kind of stable lives with wives and children. And suddenly they're, they're separated and their, their lives are threatened. And, and she becomes sort of this, you know, not, a not exactly a mother figure, but this sort of soothing inspirational figure leader almost for them. Yeah, she does. I mean, you know, in a sense, it's a kind of crass comparison, but, it does bear some comparisons. If you if you uh, remember the, the the female kind of handler spy master figure in the James Bond series, you know you yeah. know who I'm referring to. Yeah, of it's course. kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she does become the spy master as yeah. the story develops. By you know, kind of end of 1942, early 1943, she's taking on that role as the kind of orchestrator. Yeah, and she's the one that they all come to with their ideas and their inspiration and. <laughs> And, and and she's like, yeah, let's do this. And she's planning and she's strategizing. And she is bringing to the table all of that experience of her life when she was, she had to be a survivor and they did not. They were, you know, you could argue in stable jobs, you know, with stable family lives, yeah. um, you know, in, 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 in stable uh, national situations. And also bear in mind as well, you know, 
someone like Jacques or Paul Pellon, you know, their country's been invaded. Yeah. They know the Nazis are, they they know because, of course, they get feedback that, for example, their apartment is getting raided in Paris. The Nazis are hunting them down. Yeah. Yeah. And and although they are not there, their families are still there in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And although they've hidden their families, their families can be found. You know, it's a terrible situation to be in. And in that situation, you know, and I've been in lots of war situations myself as, as a war reporter over many years, and I know how this happens. When you are in a situation where you believe every day might be your last day, which, of course, they were in that situation permanently. Yeah relationships become very real and very intense very, very quickly, like in 24 hours, 48 hours. Yes. And in that situation, love yeah. just blossoms. And it did between Jacques Apte and Josephine. Yeah. They fell in love very quickly. Mm-hmm. And in that situation where you believe that you might die tomorrow or the next day or the next week, you know, and you don't, and you actually believe getting caught is not a matter of if, but when, right. and you keep getting reports of all your colleagues getting caught and tortured and all the terrible things that happened to them. Of course, you grab what you can because you're living in the now, and that's exactly what they did. They had this beautiful, tumultuous, um, troublesome, magical love affair all the way through their partnership in espionage. And the most incredible thing is, actually, in a way, you could argue it's not professional, but it certainly didn't do any harm to their espionage relationship because their espionage work blossoms even though that is going on. Yeah. No, it seems as though they were able to keep that foremost. Yeah. The important role that they had to play in these circumstances, and you know, yes, we fell, in, we fall in love, and we separate, and so on and so forth. But we can't forget the respect that we have for one another, yeah, and the role, the central role that we both have to play, yeah, and 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 the fact that we've got to vanquish this threat, this the threat of Nazism. That is that that's key. So it, you know, yeah. whatever happens between us personally, that's what we're about. Maurice Leonard Jacques Abte, sometimes known by his British alias Mr. Fox, was a blonde, blue-eyed man with Nordic good looks who had been born in the Alsace region of France. Charming, well-traveled, and multilingual, he was the French intelligence officer who initially recruited Josephine into the French intelligence service before the fall of France. In late June 1940, with half of the country occupied by Germany and the other half under the control of the Axis Vichy government, Apte joined Josephine at her chateau in the Dordogne, where the two began to hatch a number of plots to aid the Allied cause and hopefully turn the course of the war. They also became lovers. Their clandestine activities during the war took them from France to Portugal, to Spain, to Morocco, and throughout North Africa. And through all the danger, sickness, and difficulty they encountered, the two remained inseparable until Josephine's death in 1975. Of all her partners, Josephine later wrote, Jacob Tay was the one she had truly loved and wished she had settled down with. In this period of time, like 1941, 1942, they're playing a key role that I don't think that most people appreciate because the situation is so desperate. And they're, they're smuggling information out. They're getting people out of the country, and they're getting it back to London through Lisbon. 
And interestingly, Lisbon, which is neutral, continues to be neutral, and, and the Nazis would are trying to woo it over to their side. That becomes this hub of, of, uh, of, of all this intrigue with, with spies from everywhere. I mean, it's sort of like the Casablanca, you know, movie, you know, venue of its time with, uh, I'm sure, clubs and bars where there's the Polish spy and there's the German spy and so on and so forth. And Josephine is breezing in and out and knows all these people. And it seems like she never feels, I'm sure she felt in danger, but she never kind of cracks at all. She just carries out her role with complete aplomb. She does. And it's one of the most, you know, one of the most humbling things about the story is that she, you know, she walks through Lisbon on any number of missions, all of which are disguised as as her being there for performances, of course. She is performing. Mm-hmm. It's her cover. Yeah. And as, as Paul Pellol says, you must never stop performing because that's your cover. If you ever stop performing, we're, we're, we're out of business. We're blown. So she, she imagine her life. She's having to get on the stage and perform as, as if she has not a care in the world and give her all to her audience. Whereas an hour before she had been on this high stakes game of, of, of dancing with a Nazi general and drinking champagne and, and and getting secrets whispered in her ear, running to the toilet, scribbling them on her arms in ink, which of course she was told never to do by the agents who handled her, and then and then running home to a hotel, noting it down in notebooks, noting noting it down on tiny bits of paper, pinning them to her underwear, so that she could pass back through the checkpoints. She called them her little butterflies. That's the game she's playing, and and you know there's this absolutely seminal moment where she. She actually has to pass through, um, you know, various Gestapo and 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 customs checkpoints between uh, Portugal, Spain, Spanish Morocco, and then back to back to Morocco, where she and Abte had then based themselves. And she says, at every point where she was searched, people asked for her papers, but they didn't ask for her the papers they should have asked for her passport and her visas and all the rest of it, and search her for what papers she might be carrying. The papers they were asking her for were signatures and autographs. Wow. And so everything she had pinned in her underclothing, all these little tiny bits of paper with all the scraps of intelligence, never got checked. Because she, as she used to say, who would ever dare to search Josephine Baker to the skin? And it's that. It's hiding in plain sight. Yeah. She had to be exactly who she was in terms of the public image, the superstar, yeah. and hide what she was really doing, the espionage, because that's what got her through. And every single time, despite all the odds, she succeeded. Incredible. In 1942, sort of the, the base of operation shifts to North Africa, to Morocco specifically, because that becomes the hope of, of, of the British and the possibility of entering Europe. And Josephine and Abte move their sort of base of operations there. And Churchill starts to formulate a plan with Roosevelt, which becomes Operation Torch. And this plan to, because there are 300,000 French Vichy troops in North Africa. And the hope is, is that if they can invade North Africa and establish a base there, they can draw these 300,000 troops into the war and have some hope of establishing a base in North Africa and then from there starting to make inroads into, into Europe. And Josephine is and, and Abte become the absolute sort of key and center of this plan. 
because in order to do this, they have to rely on intelligence and they have to sort of build a base of support on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in the middle of it, she gets deathly sick. Yeah, sure. So the plan that, that Churchill and then Roosevelt, you know, cooked up um, together between them, against all the advice of their generals, I have to say, none of the, none of the military leaders were, were in support of this, but, but they, they were adamant this, is, this was the thing to do, was to put, and it had to be American troops, it had to be American-led, ashore, in, in, in Vichy, French, North Africa. The reason it had to be American troops was because if it was British, the French would definitely fight because of the age-old enmity between, enmity between the British and the French. You know, um, But American troops would be seen as you know acceptable. And so the idea was for an American-led landings on North African soil to wrestle away territory which was on the borders of Europe, just across the Mediterranean, springboard for the invasion and liberation of Europe. And as you rightfully say, 300,000 French troops on French North African soil who would, without doubt, join you know Allied forces once the landings had been made. So that was the plan. And to give you an indication of how, because I think people don't realise this, to give you an, an indication of how daunting and unbelievably difficult this was, the size and nature of complexity of the torch North African landings rivaled D-Day. Yes. So I'll just repeat that. Yeah. They rivaled the D-Day landings. That's how many troops were involved. That's how many seaborne craft and aircraft. It was a massive undertaking. And not only that, bear in mind, it, you could even argue it was more in, uh, difficult than D-Day or more difficult to, to organise than D-Day because with the D-Day landings, the sailings were coming from Britain across the channel, like, you know, 30, yeah. 25 miles. Most of the war material and troops for Torch sailed from the USA direct. So imagine that. Wow. And also you've got to hide all of that. You've got to deceive the enemy into thinking this massive invasion fleet is not going to North Africa. It's going to Malta or it's going to Italy or somewhere else. So it, it is the most daunting of undertakings. And you can only hope to carry out an operation of that complexity, an unknown quantity. And bear in mind, there'd never been an amphibious landing of that size or hardly at all. You can argue that it's it's even riskier. Yes. Uh, the, the stakes are higher than D-Day. Yes, you can. Absolutely. Because had this gone bad, the United States was just coming into the war. Yeah. And it would have been like such a blow uh, had it gone bad. For sure. To, to any kind of morale. And you were operating in Morocco, which was a, an area that was very, very strange, certainly to the United States. And really relying on people like Josephine and Abte, yeah. who were there, who could send back information and go, no, 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 this is what we've got here. And yeah. I've got these different Berber leaders lined up and, you know, they're going to support us. And they're completely depending on her word. Yeah. I mean, they have really no way to independently verify any of this. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, Abte and Josephine are basically tasked first by London, but then by Washington. So by now, they are spying for free France, but chiefly for Britain and America. And they know that. That's yeah. the conduit. So intelligence is going from North Africa via the 12 apostles, which were Roosevelt's 12 secret agents that he sent out to North Africa long before America declared war yeah. to scope out the torch landings under diplomatic cover. So the intelligence is going from Jacques and Josephine to the Twelve Apostles, as they were called. It's then going via diplomatic bag to London, via Lisbon, and it's then going from London, copies are going to Washington. That's the intelligence conduit. But at the hard end of operations, gathering that intelligence are Josephine and Jack, Jack Abte. And bear in mind, you know, um, 
they're being asked to do things like you know can the the the, the proposed landing beaches are they are they firm enough to take tanks are they mined what's the what what are the tide like tides like what's the underflow can we get landing craft ashore yeah. will that airfield take you know long range bombing aircraft uh you know what are the local leaders likely to do will they embrace an american landing or will they or will they are they minded to resist it if they're minded to resist it can you bring them on side so they won't resist it and in all those dealings not only has jacques captain josephine been there for many months building up an intelligence network so they could gather that intelligence they had friends in the docks they had friends in the airfields but crucially Josephine, because of her stardom, but also because of her ethnicity, mm -hmm. had built these incredible relationships with the Moroccan leaders in particular. So she could go to them and say, look, I need a quiet word with you, to the princes and the leaders, and say, look, I need a quiet word. Yeah. This is what America's intending. I can't tell you when. Yeah. I can't tell you exactly where. But I can tell you the broad basics. Will you support us? And she could bring them on side. And that was absolutely crucial, to know that the – the local, you know, Moroccan um, tribes would not rise up. Yeah. was was absolutely vital to the landings, and you know, um, to give you an indication of how absolutely vital that intelligence was that they gathered, right towards the end when the, the torch landings are about to happen, the apostles are with those apostles who can withdraw withdraw because obviously, yeah. when the fighting starts, they're going to be in deep trouble. Yeah, and, and one of them, their main handler at the time, goes to Josephine. So this is Roosevelt's man. He goes to Josephine and Jack Captain. He says to them just before he leaves, "America will never forget what you've done for her." And he repeats it: "America will never forget." So that was the, the vital importance of what of the kind of material they've been raising. And one of the things that I, I love about the way they operate, and it's one of the things that united Jack Captain and Josephine, because they were kindred spirits. Yeah, is that as I said earlier, they would work with anyone. So when Jacques Capte stumbles across a mafia operation in North Africa. And this is a, and it's an American mafia operation. This is yeah, Frank Costello. And uh, yeah, yeah, this is Costello and his gang, right? They've been approached by the Department of Defense in America. So Operation Underworld. Yeah? Right, right. Believe it or not, the American Department of Defense approached the mafia, the New York mafia, and said, look, we need to secure the, the New York docks and other docks against you know Nazi infiltration. You run the dock walkers. Come on side, work with us. You could be bad guys turn good guys. And they cut a deal. Yeah. Operation Underworld. That's extended across the world because of the mafia, you know, yeah. the American mafia's reach is global. And so Jacques Capte and Josephine come across a mafia out the the mafia network in, in Morocco and North Africa. And so they cut a deal. And the deal is we <laughs> and it's the most extraordinary deal you could possibly imagine. In fact, it's so extraordinary. When I stumbled upon it in the research, I thought this cannot be real. It was absolutely real. It's documented in the archives. And the deal was this. So the British Royal Navy was policing an embargo uh, uh, around um, uh, Nazi-occupied Europe, and they were confiscating cigarettes and bullion and, and, and all the illegal things you can imagine. But they were running a shadow operation from Gibraltar, and the shadow operation was they'd gone to a bunch of smugglers, bona fide Spanish and Portuguese smugglers, and said, right, we want you to be smugglers now on behalf of Her Majesty's government, or sorry, His Majesty's government at that time. And what we need you to do is go and gather intelligence in these places. This is what we're looking for, and to run agents and weapons. The quid pro quo is if you do that, we will provide you with an unlimited quantity of cigarettes and other bullion to smuggle, so you can generally carry on your smuggling activities. You can make the money for it, and we're happy for you to do so. This will be a self-financing intelligence-gathering operation, and the, the and, and the contraband we provide to you, we will have confiscated off the bad smugglers, and that is the deal they put together. They ran this operation for most of the war. It was it was 
called Musson's Smuggling Fleet because Musson, Captain Musson, was the British agent put in charge of it. And so Abte uses the same means. He uses the, the, those, those deliveries of contraband to the American New York Mafia in North Africa as a quid pro quo. I will provide you with unlimited cigarettes and other contraband. You provide me with the intelligence. So they cut a deal with the New York Mafia. And it's it's wonderful because that gathers them the intelligence they need. It's making a deal with the devil yeah. when you have to make a deal with the devil to, to, to defeat the greatest evil on earth. And they did it. Right, right. And also they were using some of the money to finance the French underground. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So they were running freelance, independent, self-financing, intelligence-gathering operations, a lot of the financial generation of which came from so-called illegal activities. But, you know, needs must in a time of war. Desperate times call for desperate measures, you know. Yeah, yeah. They were doing an awful lot of it without really any rubber stamp from on high. But how could you get a rubber stamp from on high? No, and, and no really a real official infrastructure no, either. No, I mean, no, yeah. this was just something that they're running off the seat of their pants. Absolutely. And they've gathered around them a, a bunch of sort of characters from a, a spy movie, right? There are all these uh, old French submarine commander and, <laughs> yeah. you know, all the, all these various characters, some of whom they couldn't even tell whether they were German spies or American spies or British spies. And then she gets sick. Yeah. And in the middle of it, she's like, oh, you know, like, confined to a clinic yeah and on the verge of death yeah so she gets you know going back to what we discussed earlier and you, you brought up you know the, the the kind of this high stakes game she's playing and how she does it so well absolutely right but the cost to her of doing that so try and put your mindset try and imagine being josephine and doing these back-to-back high stakes missions where your only cloak and dagger your only cover is your stardom as being who they think you are yeah and because only she can travel eventually because of who she is. She's doing it alone. She's doing these missions solo. Jacques Abde's not with her anymore. She's doing it by herself. He's warning her not to. He's, he's trying to stop her from doing it. She won't be stopped. Yeah. The cumulative toll of doing that is is onerous and debilitating. And eventually she gets very sick. And she's, she's confined to a clinic in Casablanca called the Conte Clinic, which was a private clinic run by a... French doctor who basically says to her, "You will never, I'll never charge you for any treatment you get here because I know who you are and know what you're doing for the cause. Amazing. Wow. However, she's in there for a very long time. And one wonders, and I've had people suggest to me, that possibly they turned a supposed disadvantage to the enormous advantage of the cause. What do I mean by that? Well, okay, let's put it like this. The Comte Clinic, right, was the perfect place for spy masters to gather or anyone to gather because anybody of any nature, uh, so any nationality, religion, allegiance whatsoever could go there to visit Josephine Baker because she's a world-renowned star, superstar. Yeah. You know, anybody so you could be a respects. Nazi official, yeah. could be an American official, could be a hobo from the street, could be a mafia. It doesn't matter. They're all fans of Josephine Baker. I want to go and visit Josephine. <laughs> We've heard she's on her deathbed. Once they get into the Comte clinic, it's a clinic. It's invi- inviolable. The Nazis can't spy there. The staff are loyal it's clean. You can do whatever you want to in there. There are, you know, there are no microphones. And they even discussed it. They even said, look, are the Gestapo really going to raid Josephine Baker's clinic? I mean, imagine the global outcry if they do. She's on a deathbed. The Gestapo invade. Yeah. They're just not going to do it. And so it gave them this perfect dead letter drop clearinghouse and spy center. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how she increasingly became like this 
female spy master that was running the whole show. Yeah. The Comte Day Clinic was the ideal place to do it from. And so one wonders, and I've discussed it with other people who kind of are aficionados of, of this period and of her work, one wonders if, yes, I, the, the illness was definitely genuine, yeah. but whether it was genuine for 18 months or whether they realised that they should make hay while the sun shone and that it was a damn good place to keep her. She is operated on. Yeah. She does have several operations. She, she undergoes yeah. op- several operations. And, and, and one of the key things that's wrong with her is she gets septicemia, which is where basically your, your blood system goes septic. Yeah. And it's so bad that she has to, she, she basically is told by the doctor that she would never give birth to children because she's got complications. So these are very real illnesses and she definitely is on death's door at times, but the duration and longevity and, and what she carries out there yeah. leads one to imagine that maybe it was kept going for a little longer than necessary because it was such a great place to set up as a base of operations for what they were doing. Operation Torch, launched on November 8th, 1942, was an Allied invasion of French Vichy-controlled North Africa, the first engagement of U.S. forces against Nazi German and Italian fascist troops and the first major airborne assault carried out by the United States. While the French territories of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia were formally aligned with Germany via Vichy France, the loyalties of the local populations of those territories were mixed. Reports from Josephine Baker and Jacques Abte indicated that they would support the Allies, and the two of them worked with local leaders to ensure that result. Their assessments of the sympathies of the French forces in North Africa also proved essential, since General Dwight D. Eisenhower hoped to secure their cooperation. Despite Operation Torch's success and the fact that it paved the way for the Allied invasion of Sicily, it has largely been overlooked in many popular histories of the war and in general cultural influence. General Eisenhower later acknowledged the critical role Josephine Baker and Jacques Apte played in Operation Torch's success. Basically, we're, we're talking about 39,000 U.S. troops commanded by General Patton and 33,000 British troops completely outnumbered by the, this, this French Vichy force of 300,000. And initially... The invasion is a complete surprise to the Nazis. It's amazing that they were able to keep it secret, as you pointed out before. And then it goes bad, because initially the French fight for the German side. And it it looks dicey there for a while. And Apte and, and, and Josephine are sort of watching all this from the balcony of the, the, the Comte Clinic. Yeah. And then they, they kind of jump in at the last minute and go like, you know, we have to work things out on the ground because it looks like it could be a catastrophe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there are American troops being killed by, you know, French soldiers and French troops being killed by American soldiers. You know, lots of French warships are blown out of the water by American warships. Lots of French planes shot down by American air power. You know, it's not initially what uh, the Allies hoped for. And, and Jacques Abte and Josephine, you know, they 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 plan this mission where they're going to get Josephine's amb- ambulance and and drive across drive across the line and try and broker some kind of ceasefire. And they actually Abte actually goes out to try and attempt it, 
by the time he's on the case, Patton has overtaken events because Patton basically says eventually to the French commander, listen, I've landed armour. If you don't give up Casablanca and throw in the towel, I will flatten the city. I mean, he loses his temper, rightfully so. And eventually an armistice is reached and the French, you know, uh, sign a peace deal. But yeah, for 48 hours, three days, four days, it looks really dicey. And it looks dicey to the extent that the apostles that remained in country, remember Roosevelt's spies, yeah. they're all rounded yeah. up. They're all carted off to what are basically concentration camps. You know, it, yeah, for, 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 for a significant period of time, things are kind of hanging in the balance, but it all comes good at the end. And, and Josephine and Jack Abtay are the first out on the street to celebrate. Fantastic story. And then her role changes because then she becomes, you know, sort of the spiritual uh, uh, leader of the campaign throughout North Africa as she goes around sort of booing the spirits of the, of the troops and, and performing for them and goes through this whole, I mean, it's kind of spe- spectacular uh, how she's traveling across the desert, cars are breaking down, yeah. <laughs> and... and what, what is so wonderful about Josephine Baker is it seems like, you know, nothing daunts her. And also, wherever she goes, she runs into people who love her or who know her and, you know, immediately are won over by her and help her out. And, you know, they tell her to show up here or show up there. She goes to Egypt. King Farouk is 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 still on the fence in terms of whether he's going to support the Allies or the Axis. And she faces him down. Yeah. I mean, he's like yeah. one of the most terrifying <laughs> figures yeah. in history, yeah. right? Yeah. And she gives him shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that. that that's <laughs> one of the most endearing, you know, factors about Josephine is that, you know, for a girl who grew up on the streets of of, of Saint Louis with nothing, she's just not daunted by anything. Yeah. Or anyone, or, or any situation. You know, she can. She can sup with kings and she can sup with paupers and be comfortable with everyone in between. And so you're absolutely right. She wins everyone over. And, you know, just to give you an example, you know, when um, the landings are successful and the American and British generals are gathering, you know, they they want to hold a gala to celebrate, you know, and to actually to raise some money for the Red Cross and other things and to buoy up the spirits of the troops. And and they they realize Josephine's in country. And so they so they ask her to perform because, you know, what could be better? And she and she and Jacques Abte have seen how, you know, American troops are segregated. You know, yeah, black platoons and white platoons, and they're they're just gobsmacked. I mean, Abte in particular, yeah. he's like, but we're fighting for freedom, and the Americans are segregating their troops. What what are we fighting for? And this is goes to the heart of Josephine. So she she goes to meet, you know, with the generals and says, "Of course I'll perform." And they say, "You know, right, we want you to sign a contract to perform only for America." American troops for the rest of the world will pay you a fortune. She says, no, you won't. She says, you're not going to pay me anything because I'll never get paid for my resistance work. And she says, no, I won't sign a contract and I won't perform for American troops only. I'll perform for any troops that are willing to fight the Nazi cause. Mm-hmm. And I will, of course, perform for American troops wherever I can. She's got this absolutely unshakable moral compass and she doesn't care yeah. who she's telling it to. And then she says, and of course, I'll, I will perform at your first gala, you know, performance in, in Morocco, but you have to um, you have to desegregate the troops, and that's a deeply unpopular suggestion with, uh, with many in high command at that time. She said, that's the condition, and that yeah. will be the condition at every single performance I do in front of American troops. And she gets yeah. that's what she gets every everywhere she goes. That troops are desegregated. So yeah. she she combines this kind of immense 
personable nature and an and, and ability to woo individuals, no matter what sector of social strata they come from, with this unshakable moral compass. These are yeah. the things I will do. These are things I won't do. And they're, and they're, yeah. they're not negotiable. Yeah. Incredible woman. Incredible woman. And, and then uh, as, as sort of the, 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 the free French forces sort of gain momentum and the Allies gain a foothold in North Africa, another problem uh, rears its head. And that is sort of the competition between the two French leaders for power. And Abte and Josephine, they get caught up in this to a certain extent. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, you know, to be honest with you, I had very little idea of this either. So, um, you know, very shortly after, you know, just days after the fall of Paris, General de Gaulle, who was a very unknown French general, military general, uh, flees to the UK, um, meets Churchill, gets appointed as the free French leader, so the leader of the French resistance in exile, does a broadcast to France in August 1940, you know, calling on the French people to rise up. It's that broadcast that Josephine listens to with Jacques Abte, and that inspires them in terms of what they should do, and General de Gaulle is their kind of inspiration from then on. But General de Gaulle is not alone. There are other fact factions trying to kind of like, you know, head up the... Uh, the French, the French resistance, the free French government in exile. Yeah. And it all comes to a head in North Africa because de Gaulle has moved there because he wants to now uh, base himself in, in, in free France, which is what North, the French North African territory has become, but so have other rivals. And it's at this moment that a really curious aspect of their spying comes to the fore. And so what has happened is this. When Jacques Abte and Josephine took that first cache of that, that war-winning cache of, of of intelligence to Lisbon to get to Great Britain uh, in in kind of September October 1940, their first real espionage mission to build the bridge back to the UK. When they undertook that mission, their handler was Wilfred Dunderdale, the spy master I mentioned earlier, who's now based in London. And Dunderdale sends them a telegram saying, "London is delighted by what you've sent us. You must keep doing the same and and and, and re-establish this pipeline and keep it flowing." Which they're obviously overjoyed to do, but they are insistent that they're signed up as agents of Free France. What that means is they're signed up as intelligence agents formerly working under de Gaulle yeah. for Free France. And 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 Dunderdale says, of course, you know, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. What happens in truth is that Dunderdale says he's going to do that, but he doesn't, because of course he's a spy master yeah. and he's playing the game. And Dunderdale handles them himself from then on. And then eventually, of course, they're also handled by the American agents, the the, the apostles yeah. who who come to North Africa on Roosevelt's behalf. So when it comes to this kind of like turf war between de Gaulle's free French and other, Darlan and other aspirational French leaders, Josephine and Jack get investigated and everybody says, we have no knowledge of you ever being a spy for France. Who in the name of God have you been spying for? Have you been spying for foreign powers? And Abte is basically arrested yeah. and pretty much accused of treason. And that's what it boils down to. Yeah. And of course, as far as Abte is concerned, and Josephine, they have been spying for Free France right. ever since they carried out their first espionage operation. Right. But of course, the French, um, you know, um, the Free French spy agency in exile right. have absolutely nothing. They've got no paperwork, they've had no contact, they've never sent them any orders, <laughs> they don't even know what work they've been doing. They weren't paying them or any because they didn't take any money. No, they were doing it. Josephine always said, I will fund all my activities myself from my own my own resources that I've earned during my career. Yeah. And so at that moment, 
Abte in particular is really in a very difficult, dangerous place. Not so much Josephine, because of course she is yeah. who she is, and she's been embraced by the American military, you know, machine, and she's performing for the Allies all, 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 all over North Africa, and then of course into France. But Jacques Abte goes through a very, very difficult time, and it's also predicated on something else, which is again utterly fascinating. If you can try and imagine this, so you're Jacques Abte and Josephine, and you're carrying out your espionage activities in North Africa. You'll work with whoever you need to work with to defeat the Nazis. You forge these relationships with the New York Mafia. You believe you're doing it with the cognizance of your spy masters, which mm -hmm. you were, yeah. only your spy masters are not who you believe they are. You <laughs> believe they're the Free French. Actually, it's Dunderdale in London and spy masters in Washington, and the Free French know nothing about it. So when the Free French find out you've cut deals with assassins, forgers, the Mafia, and various other people... As far as they're concerned, you've been involved in assassinations, forgery, money laundering with, with no clearance or authority whatsoever. So right. things that you can do in a time of war, which you believe are justified, suddenly become criminal activities. Yeah. And the allegations that Abte is having to face and fight are really, really serious and very, very difficult to deal with. And affect him the rest of his life, pretty much, the rest yeah. of his career. Absolutely. That is a blot on Abte's career, which never really was cleared and you know it's really interesting that you know i've been in in, in long contact with jack Abte's son and i think one of the things that he was most keen to do was to see a book published which actually cleared his father's name and told the true story and said look you know yes my father did things which were in a time of peace unacceptable but they were acceptable in a time of war and he did them for all the right reasons believing he had the blessing of his spy masters Many of the incredible things Josephine and Jacques Abte accomplished during the war were never officially recorded or acknowledged. In a time of extreme secrecy, without receipts or records, they were literally lost in the fog of war. In both 1957 and again in 1958, Josephine wrote to her French government contacts on Abte's behalf in support of his ongoing attempts to get all of his wartime service regularized and his wartime role properly recognized. Her intervention did have some effect. In 1959, then-French Prime Minister Michel Jean-Pierre Debray, who served under President de Gaulle from 1959 to 1962, interceded on Abte's behalf, investigating the apparent, quote, career prejudices that he may have suffered without well-founded grievances. Some of their intelligence operations, you know, um, were seminal to the course of the war. Um, and, yeah. you know, just going back to what you were saying earlier, very few people are without fear. They say the yeah. brave man or woman is the woman who feels fear, but finds a way to conquer it for the greater cause. I think that's what she did. But just to give That's you an right. example, she married a Jewish guy called um, Jean Lyon prior to the war. He was an industrialist, and their marriage fell apart during the war for obvious reasons, although they remained very close. And Jean Lyon um, had obviously talked to her about Judaism, Judaism, and she'd started carrying with her a Torah, the Jewish holy book, and she carried on doing so during many of her es espionage operations. Now, just that one thing alone, carrying the Jewish holy book through Nazi-controlled Europe, just that alone would be enough to to get you a one-way ticket to the concentration camps. Josephine did not care. As the Allies progress, Josephine is always there. She's performing 
when they liberate Paris, she's familiar with, at this point, all the generals and the Allied cause. Uh, she is a com- absolutely inspiring, you know, to all the, all the Allied troops, no matter, you know, what country they're from. Uh, e- she even goes to Buchenwald after it is liberated and performs there. I mean, the woman's energy and her dedication just never ends. And this is a woman who has spent over a year in a hospital, and yet she's traipsing everywhere, performing. I don't think she's ever been recognized, even for that role, like the inspirational figure that she was for the Allied troops throughout North Africa, through wherever they were, throughout Europe, and being on the front lines and performing. Sure. I mean, she was the USO on steroids, like a one person, a one woman, you know, USO show. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, th- th- there's a moment when she's performing, well, there's many moments, but there's a moment when she's performing, you know, late 1944, so winter 44, you know, at, as, as Allied forces push into Germany and they're under shell fire, she's on the front line and it's snowing. She's giving a performance dressing her ball gown. So she's freezing cold. And someone says to her, Josephine, you can't do this. You need to, you know, perform undercover. You need to, and she says, I'm a soldier too. <laughs> wow. And she goes on to win. Uh, I mean, she's loved by de Gaulle. She's loved by all these leaders because they appreciate, you know, maybe the press didn't catch up with it or the, you know, the media at the time, but they appreciated like how important she was. Yeah. She's invited by Churchill to, you know, perform in London for the victory parades you know, those allied leaders who were keyed into what was really going on the front line, they know the role she's performed, you know, and and I think really the kind of the moment which takes your breath away and makes you just wonder how she even held up is that moment at Buchenwald, the concentration camp. You know, allied leaders put out a call, can some entertainer please go to Buchenwald to perform for the dying? Buchenwald is full of typhoid typhoid is a killer it's highly contagious yeah. josephine has already been really ill for a year anyway no one will go but she goes yeah it's, that scene is mind-blowing yeah it is mind-blowing and has the whole place as she does everywhere she performs in tears yeah incredible and at the same time as you pointed out before she's she's got a new mission which is to sort of integrate society yeah and to get recognition for African Americans and people of, you know, of different colors and races, and um, even though she, she says like victory comes first, and let's not lose sight of that, but we've yeah. got to start sort of seeding this cause into it and not forgetting that. Absolutely, yeah. She says she says to the GIs, white and black. She says, look, you know, during those very first performances where she's making sure there's no segregation she says guys i get it we have a we have a you know we've battle here to fight for equality but let's win the fight against the greatest evil ever nazism first and then we could turn our fight to this cause and she does of course after the war she becomes a you know foremost um campaigner and, and figurehead in the civil rights movement she's invited to and she speaks alongside Martin Luther King. She's invited to take over yeah. when Martin Luther King is assassinated by his wife. Yeah, incredible. Um, you know, incredible. so she's this incredible figurehead. But bear in mind, and a really fascinating part about that is when she goes and does all that civil rights work, what does she wear? 
Does she wear a ball gown <laughs> from the Renew Review Negra? Yeah. Or does she wear a you know a, a revealing dress from you know from the Folie Bergère? No, she wears a military uniform and a croix de guerre and a Légion d'honneur. These two very high uh, valor French decorations. She's absolutely renowned and revered in France. She's a national icon and treasure. To give you an example, she was you know she was ele- elevated to the Pantheon. She was pantheonized in France. This wow. is the greatest honor of the That's nation. That's where Napoleon's buried. Absolutely. So there's about <laughs> 85, 86 individuals there. Not very yeah. many women. You know, no women of color. She's the first. Macron gave her that honor because he wanted to recognize what she'd done for the Allied cause. In the yeah. UK, she's almost unheard of. In America, she's almost unheard of in terms of this role during the war. Remember what Roosevelt's apostle said to her? He said, America will never forget what you have done for her. And he repeated that. Yeah. I'm afraid to say it. Yeah. I don't like saying it, but America has forgotten what Josephine Baker did for America. Yes. And we in Britain have as well. Yeah. She has had so many honours showered on her in, in France, rightfully so. Yeah. None in the UK, none in the States. If we can reclaim some of that heritage for her, so much the better. Uh, she's a towering figure, and I think you know, you know. Unfortunately, you know, people here still think of her as like this, you know, crazy, wild, like exotic dancer who went to Europe. Yeah, that was the vehicle that got her to a place where she could really shine and play this historic role. You know, you're 100 percent right that that was her apprenticeship. Yeah. For what she for for her real mission in life. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. You know, the war was her coming of age. Before the war, she was exactly as you describe her. The war during the war, she found who she was and she found a calling. And after the war, she put that into practice as well. Well, Damien, thank you so much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure yeah, to talk absolutely. to you. And Josephine Baker, you know, wow, will have a big impact on my life. I hope uh, a lot of people uh, read your book and hope that it becomes a huge success in the film or, or, or te- television. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, that that's supposedly happening. I'm sure it will do. Yeah. I mean, you know who's supposedly playing Josephine? It, it's Janelle Monet. It would be yeah. fantastic. She's yeah. perfect. Perfect, yeah. Why do you want that to happen? Why do I want it to happen? For the reasons we've discussed, this story needs to be known about. It's yeah. so crucial today. It and is. Freedom is under threat all over the world. We know that. Yeah. You know, at certain times, certain people step forward and do the right thing. And, and there's no greater example, in my view, than her story to, 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 to demonstrate that and to inspire us today in terms of what we, what we should be doing. Josephine Baker died on April 12, 1975, at the age of 68. Four days earlier, she had starred in a retrospective review at the Bobino in Paris, celebrating her 50 years in show business. The review, financed by Prince Rainier, Princess Grace, and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, opened to rave reviews and overflow audiences. Opening night attendees included Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Shirley Bassey, Diana Ross, and Liza Minnelli. Josephine Baker remains the only American-born woman to receive full military honors at her funeral, which attracted more than 20,000 mourners. Her awards include the Resistance Medal, the French Military Croix de Guerre, and the Legion d'Honneur. On November 30th, 2021, she was inducted into the Pantheon in Paris, the first black woman to be honored in the secular temple of the great men of the French Republic. 
We thank author Damian Lewis for telling her dramatic story of the important role she played as a British spy and French resistance agent in World War II in his best-selling book, Agent Josephine. It's my great honor to name Damian Lewis and Josephine Baker as today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer, Ralph Pizzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music. Please comment, share, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines.